And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 19th, 2022. Heather Andrews is a published author, photographer, and speaker who routinely works with homeowners and businesses to create sustainable native pollinator habitats. She grew up as one of 12 grandchildren in North Carolina and often took walks on her granddaddy Andrew's one-acre garden, where she learned about pollinators and increasing yield. During the growing season, you will find her in her Monarch Way Station, Caterpillar Heaven, video blogging on her new YouTube channel, Garden Thoughtfully. She encourages gardeners to provide wildlife habitat and fuel for native pollinators and improve vegetable yield via pollinator hedgerows and corridors. She combines information from her career in clinical research to guide her messaging and routinely creates actionable video content to enable gardeners to create a pollinator paradise in their own backyard. She is a two-time recipient of the Garden of Distinction Award by the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society. Her award-winning photographs and articles have been featured in magazines and on Medium. Most recently, she is collaborating with Gardening Know-How on a five-part butterfly gardening course. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Heather. We're delighted you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You are the pollinator person extraordinaire. <laughs> and in reading your introduction, I can't wait to hear about this, this pollinator haven that you have that um, really attracts and and you're constantly watching and videoing pollinators. And for those of you who might not think, oh, well, what does this have to do with, we think of trees, a lot of them are air pollinated, but there's a lot that are pollinated by pollinators and some of the smaller ones that we might not think about. And uh, we need to talk about this not only locally, but globally because it's it's an issue everywhere around the world about pollinators for trees. So can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved with pollinators? Sure. So I would say that I got into pollinator gardening quite by accident. Uh, I'm a Southern gardener. I grew up in North Carolina and I was one of 12 grandchildren. And my granddaddy Andrews always said that in his garden, that when his honeybees did well, his garden did well. And me and my cousins ate out of that garden every summer. But moving to the Arctic Northeast of Pennsylvania, where our growing season is about five minutes long, I had to figure out how I was going to juice my garden. Our last frost 
here in central Pennsylvania is approximately May 15th, which is a significantly shorter growing season than I was used to. So I started thinking about what my granddaddy Andrews had taught me and what clinical research now confirms, which is if you can get more pollinators in your garden, you can grow more food. According to the data, about 30% more food. So that first year, I had such a bumper crop that I was calling my neighbors going, if you don't get over here, I'm going to reverse ding dong ditch you and leave vegetables on your doorstep. And I'm ringing the bell and I'm running away because I don't know what I'm going to do with all this food. <laughs> so that's how you got indoctrinated into the, the pollinator haven uh, uh, in central Pennsylvania. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about central Pennsylvania where you're located. So we're super lucky. I can leave my house and drive about 10 to 15 minutes and be on a farm. So I'm surrounded by some incredibly beautiful farmland. I uh, love this area because there's a ton of trees. Uh, Pennsylvania actually means Penn's Woods, you know, so lots and lots of trees, which is exactly what I was used to in North Carolina, where I grew up, very green state as well. And so I love our property. We bought a foreclosure, uh, actually closed on it as we were flying back from our honeymoon or our, from our wedding. And it's covered in beautiful hardwoods and native trees and uh, a tiny little creek that runs through my tiny forest. But this yard was, since it was a foreclosure, had not been taken care of. So one of my challenges in, again, coming from an environment where really wasn't a huge challenge to grow things that weren't native quickly became a huge challenge for me here because we get very cold winters. And a lot of things that I planted that first year didn't make it. And I was super fortunate to uh, go to a lot of the native plant sales the next season, met the master gardeners actually of central Pennsylvania, both in Perry County and Cumberland County. And they were the ones who really insisted that I take some uh, native milkweed. I mean, I think I have the hardest time convincing people to plant weeds. And if I were to give any advice to the plant community is we have to give these pollinator plants a name makeover because <laughs> it's hard to convince people that this is the right thing to do. But they forced uh, swamp milkweed in my hand and I put it in my vegetable garden and those caterpillars ate it to the ground that first season and I was hooked. So that really started with really poor soil, very compact, which most homeowners deal with because the good stuff is, is scraped away when the houses are built. So they're dealing with, in my case, clay, rock, not really great, but a lot of our native plants just really thrive in those conditions because they were born here, they're from here, and they provide so much benefit to our wildlife. Heather, just curious, so you mentioned uh, the role of pollinators and food production. Did you happen to be including vegetables in that group? Exactly. So if you look at the data, and we're surrounded by lots of agricultural universities here in Pennsylvania, but there's data both out of uh, Clemson University and more recently out of Pennsylvania. Clemson University showed that by putting pollinator hedgerows in their watermelon patches versus honeybee hives, they grew 30% more food. So it's about putting the right 
plants in with the vegetable you're trying to grow so you get the right pollinator attracted into the garden. So my goal is really to increase what's called a guild around my fruit trees, especially I'm bringing in the good pollinators that will help deal with some of the pest issues. I have a completely organic, sustainable garden. I don't use any amendments whatsoever. I have a genetically compromised pet, so I can't use chemicals, nor do I want to with my pollinator garden. We definitely love to have pollinator plants because it means less maintenance for me and less pest pressure in my vegetable and fruit garden. Gotcha. Swinging it back to trees, can you tell us what trees flowering and otherwise are particularly good for pollinators? So what I like to think about when we're talking about a pollinator garden, having things that are early in the season all the way to late in the season. So one of the things that's a misnomer and probably the thing that's gotten the most attention in the pollinator world is that the honeybees do the heavy lifting and that's simply not the case. The clinical data coming out of Pennsylvania shows that the majority of our trees are pollinated by our native bees. And here in Pennsylvania, we have over 400 native bees throughout North America, 4,000 native bees. And so what are you doing to attract those native bees into your garden? If you're a fruit or vegetable gardener, you should really be looking at the native plants that would bring them into your yards. Those early emerging bees that have overwintered in your gardens, they wake up, they're only female bees, they had their eggs fertilized in the fall, and they're super hungry. And one of the first things that they go feed on are our native trees. So one of the first to bloom that our native bees really love are our red buds. And I love that tree because it blooms on the actual bark and the stems of the tree. And that is really, really helpful for those native bees. That's really an important point. I know when I was doing the research for the book that I wrote, Shrubs and Hedges, the shrubby border or the hedgerow is a really diverse microcosm. And within that hedgerow, you will have ground bees nesting. And you you know, that hedgerow is critical. And people knew that for thousands of years as they were developing their farms, that if you kept the hedgerow with the trees and the shrubs and everything together as a microcosm of diversity, you would actually keep pollinators close to your crops. And you're saying that exact thing and it has been proven time and time again that having these, these self-contained microcosms of diversity provide an additional pollinator habitat. You're 100% right. Uh, what our farmers have done for thousands of years, and if you've ever been to England, you see those hedgerows as borders, or uh, certainly sometimes they are actually property line dividers. But that's exactly what the data says. And I did a talk on this at the International Master Gardeners Conference because I was so interested in this topic. Here in Pennsylvania, our native bees and those pollinator hedgerows add $1 billion to our economy. It's not a small amount of money. And we really don't think about or give credit to the native pollinators. And we really think about, you know, nature's over there somewhere that 
we can go see nature. Well, 85% of the land in the United States, especially east of the Mississippi, is privately owned. So nature's right here. And what I like to tell people is you can really make a huge difference by planting native pollinator plants in your landscape. One, because they're less maintenance. I, I don't have a gardener that ever fights me on less maintenance. They, they love less maintenance. <laughs> but two, they can survive some of our insane weather conditions. We've had an extremely hot, dry summer. I think a lot of people have had a very dry, hot summer. And what we're seeing is the native plant landscapes are doing just fine. They're trucking right along, no problem. Whereas people are having to make decisions about what they're going to let live and let die. Right now, what I am watering selectively are things that are really helping that fall migration push. And so, you know, ideally, Within two years, your native plant landscapes are typically very well established and need little, if any, watering whatsoever. The fact that the first thing that people cut down when they do development is a hedgerow. And I always keep saying, hedgerows, hedgerows, save the hedgerow, because that hedgerow is not only critical for, for stormwater management, but also for that pollinator habitat. One of the other things that you mentioned is the idea of the stability that it creates at this time when we have these crazy weather ups and downs, heat in particular. Taller vegetation usually does a good benefit for native pollinators because it actually creates a moisture within a small community. And it also keeps the temperature down too, keeps it cooler. So not being meticulous in your garden sometimes pays off because that actually is what the salvation is for the garden because we leave things a little bit less kept and more uh, wild. You're absolutely right. And this time of year, as the leaves start to fall, I think that's really an important point. I tell people to be a little bit of a lazy gardener. Uh, and let's keep those leaves in an area that obviously won't look unsightly, but those leaves provide a very, very valuable resource in terms of protection from the winter cold. But the majority of our native pollinators are going to overwinter. So if you love butterflies, 85% of our native butterflies will overwinter here on your property. So if you're removing every leaf off your property, you're removing next year's butterflies. That goes for lightning bugs too. I really encourage people to leave the leaves. Ideally, put it behind that hedge that you're talking about or create an area in your woodland area that those leaves can live. And then next year, that can be great leaf mulch compost for your beds. Totally. I wonder if you could give us another lesson, Heather, in the uh, vein of Pollinators 101, which would be the new homeowner who has inherited, let's just say, a traditional American suburban landscape, a lot of turf, the conventional foundation plantings, juniper and blue spruce and, and things like that, decides to go all in on a pollinator garden. And I know there's many steps and those first few years are going to be labor intensive. But I'm interested in what that timeline would look like in terms of when do our friendly monarchs and others, including the bees, begin to appear? 
Great question. So um, there's a couple of things here that you've talked about. Uh, traditional landscapes. So you're not ever going to hear me tell someone that they need to go home and rip out every single plant they have and start over. Uh, that clearly is not reasonable. It's not a reasonable expectation. Uh, it's obviously usually not cost effective for people to do that. So let's start with what you have. Ideally, if you could incorporate some native plants within those beds, that would be fantastic. Not only are they very pretty, but we want to create that symphony of blooms. If you're going to have pollinators on your property, you need to constantly feed them. So, you know, Eva, if I was going to have you over for dinner, I don't know what you like to eat. So ideally, I would have multiple things for you so that there would be something for you to enjoy. So I tell people, think about this much like a multi-course meal. We want to have something early in the spring. So we want to have an appetizer for them. So that's really those early blooming trees. Those are the most valuable things for mm -hmm. pollinators because there's hundreds and hundreds of blooms. As we move into the middle spring and late spring, you know, you're really coming down a layer. So what are those shrubs that might be appropriate? And some people would say spice bush is a, a shrub, some call it a tree. I call it the beautiful forest version of what most people look at one of our early spring shrubs. But spice bush is really important for our, our swallowtails. That's a host plant. And then this time of year, the female trees also provide very, very valuable fruit for our migratory songbirds. So one criteria I have when I'm putting a new plant in my garden is what does it do for the pollinator and when does it do it? So we've got that early spring covered. Now we're moving into mid-summer, early summer. One of my absolute favorites, if you're looking to put in uh, that understory, I definitely think things like uh, button bush are beautiful and well-loved by our pollinators. Also the viburnums. Not only are they beautiful, but they are gorgeous from a smell standpoint. I just think they are prolific and like our smooth black hog viburnum also offers this time of year that late summer black fruit, which are favored by birds. Keep in mind that your birds are, you know, really going to need to fatten up for winter and uh, also for those that migrate. Those roots really provide high value this time of year as they're getting ready to do, in some cases, a thousand mile flight. In terms of the butterflies themselves, you know, it certainly depends on your temperature. So butterflies are like little solar panels. They require a specific temperature to be able to fly. So if we're talking about monarchs, the monarchs that are currently on my property are the third and soon to be fourth generation. And let's focus on that migratory generation for a minute. Those are our super generation. They are larger than the previous generation uh, by about 10%. Their wings are longer, and that's so they can glide. They will fly up to 100 miles per day, and they will fly almost 2,000 plus miles to overwinter in Michoud, Mexico. They will live approximately seven months. So they will outlive every other generation that became before them. So this is the world's longest 
multi-generation migration. So this is the fourth generation that will overwinter the following spring. They will, as it, the temperature warms up, they will start to move back to the north and then they will disperse from there. So the migratory butterflies do use these flowering trees. They do use these flowering shrubs and perennials. And my question to your audience is, when they land in your yard, is there something for them to eat? And typically when I see uh, a commercial landscape or a traditional landscape, there's absolutely nothing for them to eat. And that's really our challenge is what can you do right now to help the migration? It's almost like pulling into a rest stop along the highway, having a bathroom, but no foods or no snacks. Right. And, you know, that's not a good thing. Of course, we talk about diversity and uh, I like the fact that you're putting this into the, the migratory realm where you are, you're in a critical migratory. Where we are, we're in a critical migratory area. Those of you globally, there, I think there's like nine major flyways throughout the world. Check to see where your migration flyway is so that you know where the animals are moving from and to. And I think that that's another critical issue as well. If we understand that, we we would be better prepared for that. We don't, up until maybe about 10 years ago, we really didn't talk about migratory flyways. We, because we didn't know as much as we do now because we have drones and we have satellite and we can actually see things that we couldn't see before. And these areas are critical for animal movement, not only butterflies, but we also have dragonflies that migrate. That's right. And ladybugs migrate. Um, there was an instance in California where there was a, a big, a massive cloud and the weather person said, I've never seen anything like this. I don't know what it is. We sent out our ground staff to see what kind of cloud that was. And it was ladybugs. It was something like 10 miles wide. That's awesome. And it was because it was so hot, they were moving to a cooler location. Um, so we have to understand our animal movements in order to be able to provide for that food. And again, make sure that there's something for them to eat. And that's a great point, Eva. I think that the question then becomes, what do they eat? People get super excited about this topic when it comes to monarchs. And certainly I encourage all of the listeners uh, to plant natives to your area to help support the migration, specifically this time of year. We're looking at native milkweeds and the two most valuable plants for the migration really are our native asters and goldenrods. But if you're interested in this topic, I will say Doug Tallamy, who is a native entomologist, lives here in Pennsylvania, but teaches at University of Delaware, has really done the heavy lifting. He and his fellows have partnered with the National Wildlife Federation and have created these fantastic Keystone Native Plant Guides. So you can go to National Wildlife Federation, you can put in your zip code, and it will give you the shrubs, trees, and perennial natives that would be appropriate for your eco zone. And we're in eco zone eight, eco region eight. And what it shows you, for example, is the American plum, hosts 340 different types of caterpillars and butterflies. That's a lot. So Did you say the American were, plum? That's right. Yeah. 
And, you know, we have the plum that's along the, the shoreline, um, Prunus maritima, which also is an incredible positioning for the plant because it is in a migratory flyway. And it's also important for birds as they migrate south for eating. Exactly. Um, so it covers both realms. Right. So if you're a bird and you're flying over an area, if you were to see a plum tree, it's going to look like a smorgasbord to you. Lots of things for you to eat. And if you're a mother bird in the spring, you need 3,000 caterpillars for one nest to survive. Oh, my. So. Wow. If you just have one tree in your yard, <laughs> look to put one of these native keystone trees because clearly not all natives are equal. And uh, I think the thing I get from a lot of gardeners is, well, you know, for the monarchs, I planted milkweed. I did get any, I didn't get any monarchs. Where are the monarchs? And so we start talking about, well, what are your, your nectar sources? And they'll say, well, you know, I've got irises, I've got butterfly bush. I've got daylilies. That's just not enough. Um, mm. it, you really need these high value native nectar sources and trees are really one of the best sources when it comes to supporting burrs. And if you're a birder, I encourage you to go and download that list. You can print that list off. Audubon has a very similar list. But it will show you not only uh, the native butterflies and caterpillars, but it will also show you the bees that it supports. And so, again, coming into the fall with our native bees that are going to overwinter here, those bees are fueling up and storing the necessary things they're going to need to support the eggs for next year. So again, this goes back to my lazy gardener talk, which is don't cut everything to the ground. It's really, really, really important to leave the stems, if possible, in your garden, especially those hollow stems, because our native insects will use those hollow stems as a hotel. Mm. And your native bees are going to lay eggs in those hollow stems. So if you must clean up your yard, leave six to 12 inches of those hollow stems standing, and those become next year's bee bassinets. And then in the spring, Heather, with those hollow stems, when I mean, would aster be included in that group? So some of the asters do have hollow stems. Um, some of the ones that I leave standing are things like Joe Pieweed. Okay. Uh, that way uh, it has a big, almost straw-like inside where the insect will use that. Uh, golden rods a lot of times have the hollow stems. A lot of our insects actually drill holes into the golden rods and will overwinter there. So I, I want you to be able to support as much of the pollinators as possible. And these are some tips and tricks. So next spring, do I want you to clean up those stems? Not necessarily, because your native pollinator plants are going to grow up and around those stems. You're not even going to see them. But if you must, maybe just pile them in a corner that are going to be not visible to you, and uh, you will see them being used. I got you. And I think that it, it might be hard for some people to imagine that our trees are 
are not, they don't live in isolation. They need a diversity of other plants besides themselves. So, you know, it's like a family. We have to have everybody there around the table in order for everybody to be successful. So from the ground all the way up to the canopy, that level of plant materials needed in order for that tree to be successful, not only through pollination, but also through fruiting and seed being carried by birds and also other plants that are helping along the way to harbinger those um, insects and birds. Yeah. You are so correct, Eva, and uh, this is certainly something I encourage when I'm working with people on their landscapes is to create a landing zone around these trees because, again, a lot of your caterpillars are going to leave the tree and fall to the earth overwinter in that leaf litter or actually drill holes underneath that tree. And if what you have is turf all the way up to the roots of that tree, not only is that great for the tree because you're running over the roots and you may be cutting into the tree, but it's going to allow you to put things around that tree that will help feed the soil. The leaves are definitely a great food source for that tree, but we can plant what's called a guild. And that guild actually will feed the tree, but invite in those good guys, those good pollinators, those good predatory wasps. They're going to help protect my tree from the bad guys. And so there are things you can plant that will not only act as like a natural fertilizer for your tree, like clover, um, and it will help suppress the weeds but it will fix the nitrogen into the ground. So this is a great time of year to actually plant clover. And in my case, I plant a lot of the red clover. Boy, you wanna talk about something that looks like a million dollars in the spring and mm. bees go absolutely gaga over. I just spread that right through my orchard and it is just a sea of red. It is gorgeous. And then once it's done blooming, you can chop and drop it or you can add it to your uh, compost pile. I have a client who can't wait for us to plant the white clover, you know, to add to the lawn that's patchy right now. We're going to add the clover so that she gets the nitrogen, but also provide the flowers for the pollinators. And she's going to be happy with that. And I know that the environment's going to be much better too. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people deal with pests in their trees. You can plant things like onions and garlic. Those are deterrents for pests. But we also want to bring in plants that are going to attract those good guys. So you mentioned dragonflies earlier. I mean, that's a great one to have in your garden, especially if you're dealing with things like mosquitoes. They are mosquito munchers. They can eat tons of mosquitoes overnight. So definitely want to think about what else could I plant that's going to help be a, a dynamic soil accumulator like a rhubarb or a nasturtium, which is going to creep and crawl and attract those pollinators in, which should help pollinate your fruit trees, as well as insulate your soil. Having a lawn is extremely expensive right now, especially with gas and fertilizer costs. You know, maybe think about taking part of your lawn out. And it's really easy to do that through no-dig gardening. And I don't know if you've used that in any of your clients' gardens, but it's how I'm, I'm converting all of my clients 
And even all of my gardens now are no dig and it couldn't be simpler. You put down cardboard and on top of that, you put compost and that's it. So in my case, we use six inches of leaf uh, mulch and we plant directly in that leaf mulch and it's just no maintenance. I do not weed my vegetable garden ever. That's what I do for all my clients, decorative beds and their vegetable gardens. And when I taught at the university, our food crops garden was that way too. The, the pathways were cardboard and wood chips, and then the beds were newspaper and compost, and then planted directly into the compost. So you're right. Uh, you don't have to do any tilling. All that, that those weeds actually become green manure for your for your plants. So you don't have to do any tilling. And people always say, oh, I need to take the soil. I need to take the sod off. No, you don't have to do any of that. And right now, uh, I don't know whether you heard, but in California, they're banning watering lawns. People will no longer be able to water their lawns in California because of the Colorado River being so low. And, uh, you know, I had a call from my son. He said, mom, <laughs> He said, it's crazy out here. He said, you should see people running to the store to get buy plants to fill in where their lawn's not going to be anymore. That's great. I lived in Georgia when we went through a drought. Um, we were so desperate for water that they were looking at maps from the uh, Civil War to reclaim part of the Tennessee River. Uh, that didn't work out, by the way. But we were on every other day watering. And you quickly realized what a bad idea it was to have a lawn. Um, so we were doing a lot of gray water and so forth to even just keep our gardens going. But, you know, I didn't know what I know now about native plants. And I just see picture after picture this season of the native plant gardens looking like a million bucks right now <laughs> because <laughs> yep. they're from your area. They're used to your crazy weather. They love your terrible soil. So it's really a wonderful time of year to start putting those plants in. I know our Master Gardener Master Watershed right now has a sale on these native trees and shrubs because it's the right time of year to be putting them in the ground. So I encourage you to uh, reach out to your extension offices and see if there are sales in your areas from your watersheds, because these plants in some cases have roots that go 14 feet. So you want to talk about drought tolerant. You want to talk about things that can withstand a flood. There's a really great place I want you to come visit. Eva, well, I, well, I'll take you to lunch. So how <laughs> you're going to have to come with us. Yes, you're welcome to. <laughs> so there's this really fantastic resort near here, uh, about two hours away through the Blue Mountains. It's really a fun drive, but they have a really great story when it comes to native plants. So 20 plus years ago, this resort, which is an Omni Bedford Springs resort, okay, uh, it flooded. It was a historic hotel. It flooded and they shut it down. And what they figured out was that the creek that had ran on this property for years had over time moved out of its bank. It was one of the largest public works projects in Pennsylvania. They drilled holes. They figured out where it originally was and they put it back into its bed. But then they lined that creek with native plants and trees. Now, why would they have done that? Those roots are so deep. They are holding that creek where it needs to be. And last year we had two major storms back to back. 
and that property did not flood. That's definitely something to think about along waterways. And I know I've done a lot of work in repairing in areas of planting and definitely small shrubs, small trees, uh, their root systems go deep. And of course, when we look at riparian plants like black willow, which we never really talked about on this show, but black willow, when we used to do our, our water surveys, you could actually see when you got to a black willow that the, the stream bank was very stable and you could see the root system all the way down. It was like a big sponge. And when you got to silver maple, that was another one because they call it river maple too. You could see the bank was very stable, but where there were lacking large plants or plants at all, that was where you saw the scouring of the stream bank. And we're dealing with that here in central Pennsylvania. My county is the fastest growing county in the state right now. And there's a ton of development here. And I have my tiny creek now, anytime we get a major storm, it floods. And so my planting of native plants is to mitigate that so that it does act like a sponge. So I have things like sassafras trees, river birch that really love to soak up that excess water, but are super important for our native butterflies. Uh, sassafras is one of my absolute favorites if you have children because our uh, swallowtails use that as a host plant, just like they use the spice bush, they use sassafras. And I can, I can tell when there's a caterpillar there because they will roll themselves up burrito style in the leaves. You have to think that caterpillars are nature's hot dogs and birds love to eat them. So one of the ways this caterpillar disguises itself is to hide. And as you unroll the leaf, as he gets bigger, he starts looking like a shrimp at first, but then he looks like a snake. He's not very intimidating, honestly, but maybe he looks intimidating to a bird. So that's a really fun one. It grows about 20 feet tall. And that's certainly something to keep in mind is how big these plants are going to get on your property. It's interesting uh, that spice bush and sassafras, the scent they give off from the crushed foliage, they're somewhat similar. So yes. swallowtail must have a, a discerning sense of smell to, to bring them to that plant. Absolutely. Another one that I have on my property, again, it's about the pollinators, but I'm super excited to have it, is the only tropical fruit native to North America, which is pawpaws. Are you familiar? Right. Oh, yes. 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 Oh. Hundreds and hundreds of them. I love that. I love the way it tastes. Um, very difficult to find in a store because the uh, actual shelf life of pawpaws is quite short, but we have a pawpaw festival here at the Horn Center in York, Pennsylvania every fall, and you can get a whole platter of our native pawpaws and taste how different each one tastes. And then I've saved those seeds and have had a lot of luck getting them to start, which is really fun. But that is the host plant for our zebra swallowtails. So if you want to be able to say you have a zebra on your property, you can say that and not be lying if you have pawpaw trees. Well, that's exciting. See, you have pawpaw too, don't you, Hal? I do. I'm carefully monitoring every day because they they set a lot of fruit. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of that side yard, backyard chess game with the squirrels. I want to get them first. So I was at um, Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore last weekend for a women in horticulture meeting. 
and we were taking a walk on campus and there was this huge pawpaw that used to be a little guy when I started going there. And uh, they have a sign now, please do not touch the pawpaws because they like to feed them to, they like the students to have a taste to see what they're like, but they also like to gather the seeds too. And um, I have a whole jar of them in my refrigerator. Yeah labeled ready to plant they do require cold stratification for sure but they're yeah. pretty easy to start for sure yeah. so that's that's a really fun one to have and the story of how they've gotten to where they are is really cool so if you're interested in how seeds get spread this one requires a crunch it requires the seed to crack which is why we cold stratify it but used to be uh distributed by a dinosaur who would chew on it and crack it, uh, which is why we can see the range of that particular animal and how the pawpaws followed its range, which is pretty crazy. So very, very fun stories about uh, the pawpaw. I think some of the best stories are plant stories and how they got to where they are and who's eating them and who found them and who named them and with our remaining time, Heather, if we could just kind of maybe walk through the steps. You know, we mentioned uh, beach plum, but for someone moving towards even the most modest first steps for a pollinator garden, walk us through it again in terms of where do you want to start with, with those pollinator trees? Well, I definitely think it, just like any plant, it's right plant, right place. And so I definitely would recommend that you get your soil tested, understand what you're dealing with, and consider how large this plant's going to get. Uh, some of these trees can get very tall, and that may then change your garden dramatically as it creates more shade. And some of them can be modified by adding composted leaves or so forth. So uh, like a witch hazel is really charming this time of year because it's got these wispy yellow flowers that are pollinated by moths in the fall. So 10 to 20 feet though, uh, do you have room for that? Mm -hmm. I, I definitely would say make sure that the tree you're choosing is going to be appropriate your landscape 10 to 20 years from now. Right. That would be a, a huge one. And certainly too, those first two years, they may require some supplemental watering. So make sure that you have a water source. The main reason why gardens fail is there's no water. So I would absolutely recommend getting some soaker hoses for those trees. Certainly once they go in, especially when it's hot like right now, you're probably going to have to water every single day. But ideally what we want to move that tree to before the frost is deep watering uh, once a week if there is no rain and usually have pretty good success with that. So we water every day for the first two weeks, and then we move to once a week watering very, very deep. But it's important that you've made the investment. Let's do what we have to do uh, to keep those things alive. And then so many gardeners love their fruit trees, uh, apple, peach, cherry, things like that. How does that work in the pollinator universe? Is, is it cool to keep those trees going since some of them will be non-native? Sure. And I, I have them in my yard too. I do think that fruit trees are super important. You have bees that are not specialist bees that will feed on anything that's flowering. Honeybees are, are they're, they're browsers. They, they are not very particular. It's just that some of these native 
plants require a specialist pollinator. I see. So I don't think that you need to rip out your fruit trees. Certainly not. I wouldn't recommend that. But if you could plant a native plum tree or a native cherry tree or our pawpaws, if you're considering these trees, I mean, this is really about the right time between now and early spring to plant those so they can get their roots established and they can get situated in your landscape because they'll be focused on putting their roots down instead of trying to flower. I got you. Yeah, I just want to clarify one thing that we have to wait until we have a a rainstorm before we can actually (laughs) right now. Yeah, the watershed trees, even though you can order them right now, they won't be ready until the end of September. So it is still really warm. And so all of my landscapes that I have are waiting Um, And we're targeting a a month to two months right now because it's so hot. It's just really any any landscape's going to struggle at the moment. Yeah, and that's what I'm doing too. I'm waiting for mid-September. Hopefully we get enough rain that we can start working again in clients' gardens because they're they're chomping at the bit. They can't wait to get started. Sure. I want to use the... um platform of this podcast to shamelessly share a soaker hose idea because one of the things that drives me crazy when I drive through different neighborhoods is people throwing out 50 feet 150 feet of regular garden hose and they are so easily converted to a functional soaker hose by buying a cap at the hardware store for the male end of the hose so that's about a dollar and a quarter and then running through that entire length with your favorite all AWL or X-Acto knife and just making a series of holes. You know, we're talking about drought and yes, Southeastern PA is really struggling right now. But then on the, the other part of that equation is effective ways to water and soaker hoses really are the most efficient. They're, they're going to deliver droplets right to the ground, whereas the big oscillating sprinklers and, and other familiar, you know, rainbirds. They're great, but a lot of water goes flying right onto the sidewalk or onto the hardscape. So go out and make your own soaker hose. That's great. I totally, I totally agree with you. And I totally agree with the oscillating ones. I, I was at a park the other week helping them do some landscaping. And I said, no, deliver the water right to the yeah. plant with a shower head while you're watering getting them in because we were doing we were doing the cardboard and newspaper that kind of thing and i said make sure that you wet everything including all the cardboard because it's going to wick the water out of the ground so you want to make sure that everything is wet and soaked um we have to ask our favorite question heather and that is what is your favorite tree or group of trees or your go-to tree So I'll give you two. One is a Sweet Bay Magnolia. Because I'm a Southern girl and I have to have my magnolias, this is our native magnolia. And we have one at the front corner of my house. I can actually see it right now out of my window at my office. And we have one on the back corner where my husband's, he has a little deck off of his office. And that is just a fabulous scent and provides very attractive red berries to our birds. So he's a birder. He loves the birds. So we love the Sweet Bay Magnolia for sure. One that I have fallen in love with that is native and that um, I got to see in bloom this year, mine hasn't bloomed just yet, is a fringe tree. 
Mm -hmm. Talk about an underused tree in the landscape. Wow. Every time you see one, people are like, what is that? It's just so decadent, but it is so valuable. Clearly something is eating my leaves right now. And I consider holes and leaves a victory in my garden. I mean, I'm feeding somebody. I just don't know who. (laughs) And and the French tree needs to have a male and female because they're on separate trees. And the male flowers are much showier in the spring. So they attract more pollinators where the females are not as showy. But the fruits at this time, I saw one at Swarthmore also. It's the Scott Arboretum. And I never saw a tree so laden with droop fruits. Mm. I could not believe it. They were the size of olives because it's in the olive family. Um, And they were just hanging there waiting for the birds to come and eat them. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm so excited. (laughs) Mine is still a baby. So I'm thrilled to see its growth. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to to that part. Well, we thank you so much for being on our, our podcast today, and we wish you the very best on continuing to spread the word about pollinators and the whole system, the entire ecosystem, as a healthy one for trees as well as all their friends in the community. So we appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Heather. I learned a lot. Great. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.